Welcome to Remembrance 2021 on the Rock. I'm Jack Dawes. Our first Remembrance 2021 memory segment today takes a young man from the shores of Good Spirit Lake before there was a Saskatchewan, then it was the region of Assiniboia, Canada, from there to the Boer War in South Africa and eventually to a World War prison camp in Germany. John Gunn's grandfather, Donald Gunn, was a hardworking entrepreneur born in 1841 in the Red River colony of what is now Manitoba. In their early years, Donald and brother George Gunn operated a shingle mill and logging operation in what is now Riding Mountain National Park, south-central Manitoba. They also ran a trading post for a time. Donald's son Donald, Donald II if you will, farmed for a time near Fort Capel, but eventually, in 1887, came to the south shore of what then was called Devil's Lake, now Good Spirit Lake. Donald's granddaughter, Joyce, now Joyce Anaka, had her own World War II Army career, and she has written several books about the Good Spirit area, largely from a literal treasure trove trunk of family-kept letters. John Gunn was her father. John had signed up first to fight in what's known as the Boer War in South Africa. His military experience began with the Boer War, uh, yes, he uh, had joined up for the Boer War and uh, went over to South Africa. By the time they got there, the war was over, but he had that experience in the military training for that. So uh, uh, that was the start of his military career. In retrospect, uh, what what did he think of of that part of his career? Or did, did he share any memories with you ever about it? Uh, not really, not that that much. He had written a number of letters home and that, so uh, that was after he had died was actually when I learned more about it because I found all these letters. So then when World War One emerged, uh, he re-enlisted? Yes, he was a member of the 16th Light Horse Militia in Yorkton during 1914. I should explain that the soldiers uh, from the uh, Boer War uh, were given uh, land scripts, so a lot of them went up to the um, Grand Prairie area, Peace River Country, uh, to try farming, and Dad had spent a couple of years up there and then had come back, and that was when he was part of the uh, militia, the 16th Light Horse Militia in Yorkton. John's World War One unit arrived in England June of 1915, training there until September. It should be noted that the First World War battles in and around Ypres, Belgium, have been well recorded as an extremely important part of the Western Front during the First World War. And that was where John Alexander Gunn of Good Spirit Lake, Saskatchewan, found himself on June 2nd, 1916. That went to the trenches for the last time the evening of May the 30th, 1916. Most of the day being spent in preparation. The night of May the 30th was very dark, and as we approached our front line, we encountered very heavy machine gun and rifle fire. Our battalion relieved the 58th Battalion about 1 a.m. June the 1st, 1916 at Sanctuary Wood, just to the left of Hill 60. Our comrades of the 58th seemed only too pleased to be relieved, and things didn't look too well for the coming week. That Battle of Sanctuary Woods was John Gunn's last combat, but is it possible to think the Gunn family was fortunate? Unlike Frank Bucknam, for example, of Springside, who was killed that day, John was one of many taken prisoner. The official record is clear. The Canadian Army leadership of the day may have been as inexperienced in trench warfare as the young men. The record shows, and we quote, the stretch of ground was the only thing holding back the German army from complete domination of the Ypres sector. So in a rare aggressive move, the Germans mounted an attack the morning of June 2nd, 1916, surprising the 3rd Division with a hail of artillery fire and the detonation of four mines under their front lines. Enemy commenced on the 2nd of June firing about 8 a.m. with trench mortars, and soon afterwards with shells of various sizes, which soon developed into the worst bombardments which was ever experienced on the Western Front. After several hours of this, 
and when all our front and second line were a mile or so in width, was laid flat, and two-thirds of our men killed or wounded, the enemy advanced on our flanks through the 4th CMR's lines on our right and the PP CLI's on our left. During the furious bombardment which we were receiving, the back areas were subjected to heavy shell fire, and just behind our second line, a heavy screen of shell fire was also kept up in order that no reinforcements could be brought up or any of us retire. Again, the war records show that enemy preparations for the attack had been observed for weeks, and the intelligence was passed on, but the 3rd Division's commanders had not prepared their lines sufficiently for the coming attack, and had made no arrangements for artillery support. Probably, it was the classic trench warfare scene. After the devastation of most of the 3rd Division's lines, the flanks were held for 24 hours under heavy fire by the PPCLI, the Princess Pat Canadian Light Infantry. June 2, 1916 would be John Gunn's last day in Belgium. He was 33 years old. The Germans advanced on our flanks and the few remaining of us were cut off. The enemy then made a frontal attack as our trenches were almost leveled, hundreds dead and wounded, and only about 50 of my battalion getting out on this side, and about 100 taken prisoner, and the battalions on either side of us faring almost as badly, so surrounded and hopelessly outnumbered, we were compelled to surrender. So we asked Joyce Gunn, did he ever express his emotions? A sort of fear to excitement to just sort of well if i'm going to die i'm going to die type of uh reaction so he became a prisoner of war he became a prisoner of war uh, taken to a camp in in, in germany uh, they marched eastward and and then uh slept in a barn and then marched again and and then taken to an underground yard until near dark and then they were taken out again and crammed into cattle trucks and then were two days and as many nights on the way to the prison camp of Dolman, Westphalia and then he was uh, there for uh, some time he was two months in the camp of Dolman near the Holland frontier and then he was also five months on a bridge-building job with a hundred more on the Rhine, and the conditions there were so bad he was taken ill and sent to a large hospital in Cologne, Germany. And from then on, he was in in the hospital most of the time in Germany until finally they were sent uh, interned in Switzerland uh, for more medical treatment until the war was over, and then he went back to England in January, I think it was, of 1919, and hospitalized again for a while before he finally got home here to Yorkton. By this time, John Gunn likely had severe pneumonia. As for the prison camp food? Well, there wasn't that much food anywhere, I guess. The treatment in the in the hospital was fairly good. The prisoner of war camps for, uh, treatment wasn't that, that good, and the, and the food, they had very little food survived on on um, packages that they got from the Red Cross and from various people here in Yorkton and the surrounding communities that were sending him parcels. And that was what he uh, what he survived on. But he, he did end up with his... Uh, <clears throat> finally, he ended up by saying that after, after more than four years of army service and, you know, two and a half years of it spent in captivity, when he finally returned home, one of his notebooks he kept overseas, he wrote, a comradeship is born of such experiences, and one has the feeling that every man is a brother. Eventually, recovery in Switzerland was a pleasant and surprise change for John Gunn. It wasn't so much a... a a camp, uh, actually, um, Dad thought he was living in, the, after the prisoner of war camps, he thought he was living a life of luxury there because they um, were billeted at a hotel, 
in Switzerland, and they had um, various um, courses they could take. He was taking one in motor mechanics, and it was more a case of, of uh, prisoners of war that needed a little more medical treatment and also uh, one step t- towards being, um, you know, sent home because this was in um, 1918 already and the war was, you know, coming to an end and whether they realized it or not. So in, in some ways, even though it was a disturbing uh, experience, uh, uh, having become a prisoner of war, uh, uh, he uh, actually was able to extract some benefits from it. Uh, yes. He I'm, was, I'm thinking uh, in terms of the, the, the course in motor mechanics, for example. Yes, he was, he was taking that, and I know I remember reading it in one of them where he said he was also learning uh, French, and uh, probably because of all the variety of, of uh, ones that were there, uh, he was learning bits and pieces of other languages, and uh, they were encouraged to uh, go hiking. And I guess it was all, you know, as part of their medical treatment. But um, no, uh, those few months in in Switzerland, uh, I think he found quite a, a nice change after being in Germany. Uh, well, this this is really fascinating. Uh... Uh, Joyce, and it's a, a part of the story that I had never expected. Uh, so uh, I'm just, it's great. So I'm just wondering then also, as far as uh, his, uh, say, his career here back home in Canada, did he keep up his military uh, contacts? And uh, he became part of the militia then. Uh, yes, he he was still, he still kept up his contact with the 16th Canadian Light Horse here in Yorkton. And he attended their summer their um, summer camps, and there was a lot of uh, old pictures and letters and that, more notes and letters actually, uh, from his time during uh, the militia here. Well, they had quite the um, training camp here every summer uh, in in Yorkton during the 1920s. Listen, the, you've told uh, you've really passed along some great information for me. Well, I hope and... it's been useful. Oh, very much, yeah. Eventually returned to the Good Spirit Lake homestead, the guns followed through with a sort of trading post for neighbors and beach seekers. He wasn't as healthy and strong as he had been, and as I say, he struggled through bouts of asthma every winter. But he was, you know, nonetheless anxious to return to an active life. In an interview with Ken Liddell of the Regina Leader Post, I think it was in May 1945, Dad said he set up a summer resort on the old ranch site after he got back, more or less in self-defense. <laughs> people from the adjacent villages, you know, would go to the lakeshore for a weekend or camping, and they were undisturbed by the fact that actually they were trespassing on the gun property. And they would tell um, tell the guns that they should open a store and make things more convenient for the people coming to the lake. So they opened a small store, if it could be called that. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, it was much like the temporary stall seen at sports days and fairs with a roof made of green branches to keep the sun off and a counter running across the front with, you know, homemade lemonade and, and other drinks made from fruit salads, fruit syrups, plus, uh, you know, homemade ice cream, and that was about it. <laughs> so, Joyce, now tell me about your mother and uh, how she and John got together. Mother had come out from England uh, in 19... 19- 22, she had an uncle, uh, an aunt living here in Yorkton, uh, the George Collins. The Yorkton Public Library has a copy of Joyce and Acker's biographic book compiled from family letters. It is called The Guns of Good Spirit. I'm Jack Dawes, and this is Remembrance 2021 on The Rock.
This is Remembrance 2021 on the Rock. On June 5, 1944, on board a convoy of 237 ships, Canadian farm boy Lloyd Tibbetts of Fox Warren, Manitoba, was one of over 4,600 Canadian soldiers, over 1,000 British, 50 Americans, and 15 Free French, part of the massive Operation Overlord, on the attack at D-Day. The Canadian mission, Juneau Beach, Normandy, France, roughly 20 miles of Hitler's heavily defended Atlantic Wall. Fast forward, October 27, 2021, at Russell, Manitoba. Bruno Cornichon. This honor is in recognition of outstanding achievement made while in service to the French Republic or other civilian or military capacity. This distinction il illustrates the profound gratitude that France would like to express to Mr. Lloyd Clifford Tibbetts in recognition of your determination, your courage, and professional contribution to the liberation of France, my country of birth. Through you, France remembered the sacrifice of all your compatriots who came to help liberate France. Lloyd Tibbetts, now 97, received the highest award France can bestow on a civilian or military person. The presenter, Mr. Bruno Cornichon of Winnipeg, now a special representative from the government of France, a proud Canadian. Today is a notable day for everyone here, but especially for one special gentleman who in a few minutes will officially be made Knight of the French National Order of the Legion of Honor. It is a real honor for me to have the opportunity to present this prestigious award to Mr. Lloyd Clifford Tibbetts, acknowledging his participation of the D-Day landing in Normandy, France. Approximately eight years ago, the French government had decided to bestow the medal to the brave veterans from Canada who were, who were on site during the D-Day operation and landing. Well, no less than Napoleon Bonaparte himself first declared the Legion of Honor in May of 1802. Lloyd Tibbetts is the 58th Manitoban to receive it, one of 1,800 Canadian recipients. The next voice you hear, Russell Legion President L. Marshall. Comrade Lloyd Clifford Tibbetts, age 97, served with the Canadian Army during World War II from April the 13th, 1943 to March 30th, 1946. He enlisted and served with the Winnipeg Rifles and then transferred to the Regina Rifles with, of the Canadian Infantry while in France in July of 1944. Lloyd participated in Operation Overlord, landing at 7.45 a.m. on the 6th of June, 1944. He served in the liberation of France, Belgium, Holland, and Germany, and Lloyd has been nominated for the French National Order of the Legion of Honor for his involvement in the landings at Normandy, France on June the 6th, 1944. Following his honorable discharge from the Canadian Infantry in 1946, Lloyd returned to his home at Fox Warren, Manitoba, where he continued his farming career, and I understand he was also involved in building some major grain elevators. Lloyd married Frances Calder on October the 17th, 1985, and she has since passed. Comrade Lloyd Tibbetts has been a loyal and dedicated member of the Royal Canadian Legion for 71 years, having joined in 1950. During his 71 years of service to the Royal Canadian Legion, he has served at the Fox Warren branch, and then he transferred to Russell when he moved to Russell. Comrade Lloyd Tibbetts currently resides at the Russell and District Personal Care Home, and each year he is very excited to attend the annual Russell and District Remembrance Day service. Just recently, he received his World War II medals, which he's proudly wearing, and he now can add another Medal of Honor to his collection. Thank you, Lloyd Tibbetts, for a remarkable life. In reality, most W-2 veterans have passed on, so Sir Lloyd Tibbetts may have been the last Manitoban to receive the Legion of Honor. Typically, Lloyd the Soldier, 
is a man of few words. With Lloyd Tibbetts. Lloyd, could I ask you, first of all, what what you think of what went on here today? Oh, it was pretty impressive. Do you remember when you signed up, why you did? Oh, uh, I, I signed up 13th of April, 43, I guess. I see. Yeah. And I just started March the 30th, 46. What was your outfit? Regina Rifles. Regina Rifles was was a part of the whole, the 3rd Division. I see. Regina Rifles, Winnipeg Rifles, and the Canadian Scars yeah. with the 7th Brigade. And what was your job? Were you... Uh, well, I was just infantry. You were infantry? Not just. <laughs> yeah. Infantry, yeah. I, I'm just wondering if, if, if there are any of your experiences at the time... B-Day or overseas or whatnot that come to mind that uh, you'd want to mention to me? Oh, it was just a scary time in my life, I guess, but I made it through. Well, uh, we we very much appreciate what you did, and uh, yeah. I'm happy to be here today. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, thank yeah. you. Okay. And again, with the French representative, Winnipeg Board Bruno Cornichon, potentially adding a lighter note. In uh, Normandy, when they landed, a lot of them that I have decorated in Manitoba, uh, Mr. Tibbetts is number 39. One of them in Verdun came after the ceremony and came to me. He says, I don't remember much French, but there's one thing I do remember when we were there. We would ask, do you have any French eggs, a fresh eggs, and some Calvados? Calvados is the equivalent of the moonshine in your <laughs> So they were quite happy to drink that stuff. Wow. Just a little reminder, I mentioned it earlier to Mr. Tibbetts. So. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bruno Cornichon has French and Canadian citizenship. He was chosen by the government of France to recognize the contribution of Canadian servicemen to defeating the Nazis in World War II. Bruno, could you explain this award that was made today? It's uh, not given very easily, but people who do uh, uh, have the great honor to receive it obviously are extremely pleased. And with the uh, Canadian veterans, it was the best thing that the government of France could do for the Canadian veterans to give them the Legion of Honor as the highest recognition in the lifetime. So it should have been done 25 years ago so we could decorate more. But and how many of them have been awarded now? In, uh, in Canada, by the time we are finished, about 1,800. And uh, in Manitoba, there is between 50 and 60, but I only was able to decorate, uh, including Mr. Tibbet today, uh, 39. Hopefully we'll have more. And Yeah, I was going to say, since you are uh, out of Yorkton, um, it's not my territory in Saskatchewan, but I know that some veterans in Saskatchewan did receive the Legion of Honor, but I don't think they got it officially from a, a French official, and I wish that we could do some research uh, about it. I've done it, uh, I've talked to the uh, two uh, riflemen from Regina, from Regina Rifle, and they're going to do some uh, research on that, so perhaps we could get something going, mm-hmm. and maybe yourself can yeah. talk to some authorities there in Saskatchewan. Yes. You are a French citizen and yes. a Canadian citizen. Yes. Uh, can you give me a bit of the backstory of how you became the the consul? Well, uh, been uh, becoming a consul uh, is, as I said, is what you do accomplish in life as a businessman, as a teacher, as uh, any profession, and uh, it is up to the ambassador, consul general, and the president to say, okay, he does qualify, she does qualify and let's nominate him. You are officially nominated by the president of France and the ambassador in Canada or any other country does the official nomination for the job. I see. So you have a background in the farm equipment industry. Was that what brought you to Canada? No, no, no. no. I, I, I came here with nothing in my pocket all by myself. 
and uh, landed in Regina and started uh, studying in Regina. And then after that, uh, I became a mechanical engineer, uh, went to York University for international training. I went to Simon Fraser University for other training and uh, obtained certificates from there. And uh, the rest is history. I traveled the world and it's been wonderful. So uh, you worked for Versatile. I worked for Versatile for 17 years. And then I was with Ford Motor Company before that in uh, Oakville. And then was transferred to the, in the, in the yeah, to United States, to Troy and Detroit, Michigan, to the engineering department there. And did some work, didn't like it. Came back to Winnipeg and got hired by Versatile to develop the, the world market, which I did. And after that, I uh, got hired by a new flyer as vice president of uh, international sales. And new flyer were in the bus business. Bus business, yeah. yeah, And still doing very well today. Yeah. You sent buses all over the world as well as farm equipment? Uh, we tried. <laughs> <laughs> they don't go very fast, but they get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a great story. Thanks for sharing. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure, yeah. and I hope that we can get to talk again yes. uh, because I still have a, a spot in my heart for Saskatchewan because I did travel to Yorkton, Campsack, Kenora, and all yes. those areas there, and obviously Regina, Mouchdera, yes. and uh, the southern part of Saskatchewan, I don't know it as well, <laughs> and that's the French community. Yes. But, uh, so right. then perhaps maybe there we got some... Uh, potential candidates for the Legion of Honor. So yeah. prestigious uh, medal to these veterans that have done so much for France. And, and people don't recognize that enough in Canada. It's Great. sad. So, Others who attended the ceremony at the Royal Canadian Legion October 27th in Russell, Manitoba, District 2 Commander Gene Wright of Brandon, tributes also made to another Russell veteran, Earl Smith, who researched this award, helped Sir Lloyd Tibbetts apply for it, and made all the arrangements for presentation. I'm Jack Does, and I thank you for tuning to our annual Remembrance Day tribute from the Rock 98.5. That Legion of Honor presentation made my heart burst with pride. Never have I been more proud to join the singing of our national anthem, introduced by Legion President Al Marshall, followed by Russell Legion Chaplain Chris Pilon. Okay, everyone, we're going to ask you to stand, and we're going to be playing both anthems, O Canada, followed by the French anthem. We pray first for peace. We pray that our waste of wraths and sorrows may be put aside and we have peace among nations, 
peace in our homes, and peace in our hearts. We also commend to our gracious carekeeping all the men and women of our armed forces and other countries' armed forces at home and abroad. We ask that you defend them day by day with your grace. Strengthen them in their trials and temptations. Give them courage to face the perils which beset them and grant them a sense of peace wherever they may be. And we pray for our veterans. We remember before you those who laid down their lives for freedom and truth. We commend their souls into your gracious keeping and pray that we may be worthy of their sacrifice. Help us to be faithful and true to those ideals for which they fought and died. May we continue to perpetuate the memory of our departed comrades by our service to country, community, and comrades. And remembering our solemn obligation, may we ever pray, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget. Lest Lest we we forget. forget. Now, in his book about... Canadians at D-Day, Juneau Beach, author Ted Barris writes that it would take weeks for the Allies to break out of Normandy, months to drive the Germans back into their own country, and eventual defeat. But Barris also reminds us it's still possible to detect on the ground where and how the Canadians fought by reading the dates on their headstones in the Commonwealth War Grave cemeteries that mark the progress inland. And my personal thanks to RCMP retired Barry Diltz, now of Melville. He was my personal military escort to see D-Day vet Lloyd Tibbetts recognized as a Canadian war hero. Also, Russell Legion President Al Marshall more than went out of his way to welcome and accommodate us. It's Remembrance 2021 on the Rock 98.5. While we visited Russell to join in the honoring of D-Day vet Lloyd Tibbetts, we were reminded as well about a previous Canadian conflict, the Northwest Rebellion of 1885. Among the combatants at Batoche in May of that year, a group of infantry raised by one Major Charles Arkell Bolton of Russell, Manitoba. It turns out two of Bolton's men were killed in the Batoche encounter, after which a memorial was raised by the Bolton militiamen at Russell. And that memorial now sits on the home property of Russell residents Ray and Karen Elliott, and it's not far from a house named after the major called Bolton Manor. And that history linked to the Northwest Rebellion and the Batoche incident connects us back to a performance by Saskatchewan Métis artist Andrea Menard. This was for a performance on Louis Riel Day, August 24th of 2019, a song reflecting the feelings of a woman who has to say goodbye to her young man headed off to war. Louis Rail is a hero now, but 140 years ago? I don't remember the date exactly, but 1885, whatever that is. You know, he was hanged as a traitor in this country. And so we, we obviously can't forget that either. And we're celebrating him today, which is a big deal. And I thank you for that. I thank you for that. As part of reconciliation is to change the narrative of our history because there's many sides to our stories and they're all important. And as a Métis woman, you know, there's a lot of Métis women left out of history too. (laughs) So this song called Boy for One More Day is written when I performed with um, a group of actors in Batoche called the Batoche Musical, and we're like, you know what? My character needs a song. There's no character, there's no, there's no story for the Métis women. And I want to create a story, a song for the Métis women who stood up and who didn't necessarily want their men to go to war. But as women in all countries, We don't necessarily want our men to go to war. (laughs) We're our sons, we're our fathers. (sighs) So this is a song about that female heart. Louis Riel, as you know, wrote some prolifically in the prison before he was hanged. And Sur la Chant de Bataille was one of the poems he wrote and this was put to music by someone I'm 
uh, put the hit put his um, words to music. So this is um, a song about war because he he Louis Riel wrote this song as a prisoner of war, and I write I wrote girl for boy for one more day for a girl who had, who has to watch her love go off to war. What happened to this day? This day's been marred by battle And battle calls all men Are you a man now, my love? This is Remembrance 2021 on The Rock. I'm Jack Dawes. Well, veterans of the Korean War often complained that theirs was a forgotten war. The media talked only about the big conflicts of World War I or II, it seemed. In fact, the political spin, largely American, but with Canadian complicity, it seems, enraged Korean veterans by calling it merely a police action. Toronto writer Ted Barris' book about Korea is called Deadlock in Korea, Canadians at War, 1950-1953. And you said to call Korea a police action was an insult to the veterans, the people who were there. Could you just expand on that a bit? When I first delved into this whole story of Canadians in the Korean War, uh, I waded through incredible volumes of mumbo-jumbo about how this was a backwater war in a remote corner of the world that was not really important in terms of its impact on the on on Canada and 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 I, I began to realize that I needed to talk to veterans of the war to better understand it because the the way it was couched in 1950 when the North Koreans came across the 38th parallel into South Korea of course. The, the, the dividing line, the 38th parallel, had been dis decided by the Allies during the Second World War as a means of redistributing uh, Japanese prisoners of war at the end of the Second World War, so that those north of the 38th parallel were handled by the, the Communist Chinese and the Soviets, and then those south of the 38th parallel, Japanese POWs, were handled by the United States and other nations. So that immediately 
set that dividing line and established essentially a, a, a hot zone of conflict. So when the North Koreans, the communists, came across to the south, that triggered the United Nations Peace Accord, which had been signed in 1946. Canada was signatory and uh, about 100 other nations. And it meant that it said basically if any one of the nation, member nations has its sovereignty breached by another signatory or another member of the world community, the rest of the world comes to its assistance. Canada signed that that um, signatory and was signatory, and so away we went. Now, they tried at the time to to dismiss it as something that was not tantamount to a third world war, even though it was putting essentially pitting the communist world against the Western world, and had the potential to introduce nuclear weapons because uh, MacArthur recommended it. All kinds of elements made this a much bigger deal than the politicians who called it a conflict or a backwater police action. In fact, if you talk to veterans, and I did, and I listened to them, they were very angry when it was dismissed that way. For them, it was the Korean War. It was as dirty as, it was as involved as, it was as critical as, it was as passionate in terms of both sides winning uh, as any other war, and any veteran who went through it would be insulted to hear it referred to as anything but that. So, uh, Ted, I was struck by your comments in the video that I watched about the different kind of war it was to the Second World War, and you referred to it as more as like the First World War with trench fighting and fighting for hills. Uh, would you expand on that? Sure. Um, anybody who's been to Korea north or south, knows that the country is a, nothing but a series of hills. And they're not in any particular, you know, it's not like the Rocky Mountains where you have a range of mountains and then, you know, interior uh, valleys and so on and then another range. These are hills that are scattered all over the place. There was no uh, sort of organized uh, uh, geography. And as a consequence, wide-ranging motion on the ground was impossible, like, you know, like an invasion at Normandy or, you know, the uh, sweeping effect of uh, Operation Market Garden uh, into, the, into the Netherlands. It was essentially a war between platoons, groups of men on one side against the groups of men on the other. And, 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 and through the first year of the war, uh, this skirmishing among these hills went up and down the peninsula two or three times until we were right back at the 38th parallel in 1952 after the war broke out. Then when peace talks were um, begun, and it was a bit of a scam because most, both sides were using the idea of discussions of peace as propaganda tools, essentially it became a war of attrition. There was this dividing line on the peninsula, much as the 38th parallel had been, and the communists were to the north, the United Nations to the south, and there was this no-man's land of several miles, two, three, four, five, six miles between each side, and the, and the war consisted of small platoons of going out into the night, poking around to try to capture communist forces and vice versa. And these skirmishes went on throughout the war. So uh, essentially both sides dug in on either side of, the, of that 38th parallel, much like in the First World War along the Western Front, and dug down into you know, dugouts and trenches and you know, galleys underground and waited for the other side to come. And so it was, one of the veterans said to me, my grandfather, who had been a veteran of the First World War, would have been more comfortable here than I was. So that's the kind of fighting that existed from 1951 until 1953. Canada, as a nation, once was referred to as a hewer of wood and drawer of water. In Korea, our Air Force became an airborne transportation mule. You, you mentioned that one of the chief roles for Canada became a transport role. That was a bit surprising to me as well. Well, the Air Force, which at the, second, the end of the Second World War, had grown into uh, quite an important allied tool and then in peacetime became essentially the network for which uh, uh, peacetime commercial air aviation uh, grew in Canada. Uh, even though the, the ranks of the Air Force depleted, there were still the pilots who were trained in fighter command and bomber command and coastal command and training command in Canada who in the Korean War took on the role of transport, transporting ammunition, food, medicine, supplies from North America to the battlefront in Korea. And the only route to get across the Pacific was to follow essentially the coastline 
of North America as far west as the Aleutian Islands of Alaska, and then hop to a series of islands in the middle of the Pacific for refueling, and then on to Tokyo, and then do a circuit coming back through Hawaii and then back to the North America. And Canada, the 426 Squadron, Thunderbird, took on the role of carrying out that transport uh, operation. And um, even though the Americans did the bulk of the transport, the Canadians were in circulation around the clock. I think at best we had uh, maybe 20 aircraft involved in this, and the North Stars, four-engine uh, turboprop engines, and essentially they continued a circuit with crews of you know six, eight men um, around this route from North America across the Aleutians to Shemya, this little island where they refueled, and then on to the the uh, to Sasebo or Tokyo in Japan, and then back. And they were in the air constantly. The, the remarkable thing about 426 Squadron of the RCAF, even though they weren't involved in some of the the uh, uh, jet fighting that was happening over Korea, carried on this aviation. A miracle of delivering goods and bringing back uh, bodies, in effect, from the Korean War for three solid years with hundreds of hours of flying time back to back to back to back. They lost no aircraft, no airmen, and completed every operation successfully. Successful or not, Canada and Korea continued to be denigrated in our own country. I, the, may, maybe the best way for me to illustrate how drastic that misunderstanding of the war uh, was at the end of the Korean War would be to, to tell you a quick story. And, and bear in mind that when the armistice was signed in July of 1953, it simply meant that there was a ceasefire. That's all. So for the 70 years since the end of the, of the Korean War, the two sides are still technically at war, which was why when there were skirmishes a number of years ago, depending on the regime in North and South regimes in North and South Korea, it was, you know, it ran, it ran the risk of, of flaring up again into a full-scale war. It hasn't happened, fortunately, and, and in both, most cases, they've managed to kind of put a damper on it. But at the end of the war, a young guy by the name of Bill Jacks, who had served in the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, did a full year's tour and then some because in training you would lead up to it. He came home in October of 1952 after being in Korea on that trench line along the... Uh, the 38th parallel, fighting the skirmishes that I just mentioned for a full year through winter and summer. And he comes home in October of 1952, back to Brooks, Alberta. And that particular year, 1952, he went with his father to what was referred to as a smoker at the Royal Canadian Legion in Brooks. And this is where all the old vets got together and, you know, told lies and, you know, talked about their wars. And in that case, it was the Great War, the First World War, and the Second World War. And men were invited to offer a talk a little bit about their experiences. So Bill's dad, at this smoker in Brooks, when all these guys had gathered at the Legion, stood up and said, My son, Bill, has just returned from duty, service, a year and a half in the Korean War. And I thought, maybe you might um, appreciate hearing some of his thoughts and his experiences. Bill stood up and was about to speak, and some guy in the back of the room screamed at him, sit down, that wasn't a war, you don't belong here. In other words, they didn't consider what he'd gone through in Korea as a war, which was what we, where we began this, this conversation a few minutes ago. For the veterans of the first war and the second war, Korea was not a war, and it took many years for the Korean War veterans to get their due, to get their status, and even for the Royal Canadian Legion to recognize that they were bonafide veterans. Eventually it happened, but it was sadly it took time, and that chauvinism that had existed when uh, the Korean War veterans came home to Canada uh, forced many of them not to even talk about it, uh, to, to sort of hide the fact uh, that they had been there because for some it was an embarrassment. It's interesting, said Ted Barris, that the Korean War became the backdrop for one of the zaniest of sitcoms, MASH. What was that about, Ted? Well, it's interesting you should say that. In, in my most recent book, uh, in 2019, uh, my book, Rush to Danger, was published, which is a book about medics in war. Yes, of my which father your father was, was one, yes. Right, in the American Army. And one of the things I was curious about was the research for MASH 
uh, how it was done. And I discovered that Larry Gelbart, the guy who actually created the movie in 1970, and then the, subsequently the, the sitcom that went on for about six or seven seasons and you know uh, hundreds of episodes, Gelbart recognized that the point of the MASH was it was a satire about the Vietnam War using Korea and the Korean War experience, the MASH units, uh, the mobile uh, hospitals in, in Korea as the sort of vehicle for the satire. But when he was handed the, the, uh, the invitation to do the sort of 26-week uh, or 52-week series each year on MASH, he realized he couldn't just write shtick. It couldn't just be funny gags, you know, gag after gag after gag. And so Gelbart actually went, after the movie, went and interviewed Korean War veterans who had served in mil military MASH units in Korea and learned more about what MASH units experienced than he had understood even for the first movie that was very successful. And then what he did was, using the history that he gathered from interviewing the actual American Korean War veterans in the medical corps, he used their experiences to be at the base of every episode. And I discovered this on a number of occasions that some of the interviews that I did perfectly reflected what happened in MASH. Why? Because Gelbart had based all of his satire, all of his comedy, basically on the history of the MASH units in Korea as a basis. So that, so that in, in effect, you had a great cast of actors making us laugh hysterically at very funny lines, but at the basis of it was the reality of the Korean War experience of medics in that war. And I was blown away by that and, and wrote about it in my uh, Rush to Danger book. So it's very significant. It's very reflective of what the, the Korean War medics experience was in spite of the laughter on top of it. Ted Barris is the author of Deadlock in Korea, Canadians at War 1950-53. Ted, uh, thanks a lot for your time, and we'll look forward to your next book about the Battle of the Atlantic when it's available. Thank you, Jack. A pleasure as always. Ted Barris has written five books about Canadians at war. He's also the author of Fire Canoes, the history of steamboats on our prairie rivers. He's written about sports, rodeo, and music. His next book is due out this fall, featuring the Battle of the Atlantic, which was largely manned by prairie sailors. It's Remembrance on the Rock. I'm Jack Dawes. These days, it's only a distant memory, but after the Korean War, it's now worth remembering the era of nuclear war threat. It turns out a local military man played a key role in that nuclear defense. Here's Delvin Smutku of Stockholm, who once toured a massive Cold War bunker, part of the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD. Lawrence Danger of Yorkton happened to be an uncle to Delvin Smutku. Had told him about oh it would have been at least a month before we went that we were coming and he had to get clearance for us we had they had to do uh, checks and all that to make sure we had no records or anything like that and when we got there he told us he was going to give us a tour of the Air Force Base and we were really excited about that it was really kind of interesting because when we when we got there I found it pretty fascinating everybody that walked by him saluted him eh? and we were kind of <laughs> walking behind him and we were kind of playing salute we had no idea that we were going to be seeing seeing something that they called a bunker so did people in north bay ontario know about this apparently secret installation built to survive a nuclear attack it was i wouldn't call it a mountain but it was like a big hill there were guards all around and we drove up to this it was massive doors jack like i'm talking huge doors like they it's a long time ago but Probably 15 by 15 doors, two of them, uh, and they, they opened uh, like if from the middle out, both sides. But those doors must have been probably three feet thick. Still in a Jeep, a descent of 100 yards or so. Still aboard that Jeep, a descent of 100 yards more led to another set of three-foot steel and concrete doors. Behind those, Delvin Samutku describes as a huge installation, including a room with large TV-like screens, and they were shown pictures. Showed us a long way shot, 
and he told us it was a street in Moscow. We could see the vehicles driving, you know, you could see the lights from way up. And then he, then for somehow they zoomed down, and you could literally, you could, you couldn't read the numbers, but I think they could have if they'd wanted to. You could literally see where the license plates were located on the cars. That was a, from a satellite, obviously. Uh, it must, you know, in those days, it must. Well, it would have been, yeah. In those days, of course, computers were huge, filling up whole rooms. These days, they would be replaced by a standard laptop. Later, local North Bay people just called it the hole. It was part of the Canada-U.S. joint computer network designed to help prevent, or if necessary, fight a nuclear war with Russia. As to the real threat of nuclear war, the Cuban missile crisis of the early 1960s was real and instructive. I think it was Gander, but I'm not sure that during the, uh, during the Cuban missile crisis, and he was telling us that, you know, during that visit, he said, actually, he says, at that time, like with NORAD, when, when, the, when, that, when that crisis happened, he said every, every jet that the Americans had of warplanes, they were fueled on the tarmacs, every pilot was in the planes, everything was ready to go. That's how close we actually came to nuclear war. We were in Bangor, Saskatchewan. And we were at a wedding, and it was a family, local family here that was getting married. People were going out to their cars to see what happened during that afternoon to see if there would be nuclear war or not, or if there would be a war declared. In peacetime, Lawrence Danger may have been a little ahead of his time with his family. Eventually, he ran what would have been Yorkton's first commercial donut shop. And he actually took his pension money from that military and bought the business called, uh, it was called Donut World in Yorkton. I don't know if people remember that, but the, he, he, he owned and ran that Donut World. He loved it. He would sit in there, and he loved kids, and he would love talking to the kids and all that kind of stuff. He really enjoyed the business. And it would have been quite a, quite a change for the strict and the military. Mr. Stanger has since passed away at one time, he was the man in charge at the former radar site northwest of Yorkton at Arcadia. His nephew, Delvin Smutku, describes his uncle as an incredible man. And you may find a documentary about the hole online. It's called The Hole in Reservoir Hill. This has been Remembrance 2021 on Yorkton's locally owned radio station, The Rock 98.5. I'm Jack Dawes.